for me, I remember why I'm doing it. I think there's got to be a reason for being out there. Every, whatever people's reason is, it's probably all going to be different, but you've got to really want it, really want it, rather than just say, I'm willing to put up with it. You've got to want it. You've got to want to be out there hurting yourself like this. And you always have to remember why you want it so much. Now, some people's main trigger might be that they just want to win. Mine has been that to a certain extent. I wanted to be the best I could. I tend to want to be the best I can at whatever I'm doing, or else I'll drop that and go and do something where I can achieve 100%. I don't want to waste my time dibble dabbling and 50% and doing a bit here and there. And for me, it's been always about the animals and the suffering. And I think if I can, if by doing this, I can convince one other person there is actually validity and viability in what I'm trying to promote, which is veganism, then it will always drive me on that little bit further. Welcome to the Driving Force podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned exponential performance coach and endurance athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Fiona Oaks. Probably best described on the Fiona Oaks Foundation website, Fiona is outreach in action. A pioneer for vegan athletes, Fiona somehow finds the time to be both an elite marathon runner and a caretaker of over 400 animals at the sanctuary she founded in 1996 called the Tower Hill Stables Animal Sanctuary. Her typical day, which has changed a bit due to the pandemic, usually starts with her waking up around 3 a.m. every morning to take care of the animals and also working in her, on her training, which could often look like a 20 plus mile run before it's back to taking care of the animals. She finds the energy to do all of this with just one meal a day completely vegan. Some of her running accomplishments include, in 2012, being the first vegan woman to complete the grueling Marathon de Sable, a six-day, 251-kilometer ultramarathon in the Sahara Desert. In 2013, winning the North Pole Marathon, that's right, at the North Pole, and being the fastest woman to run a marathon on every continent. Fiona's successes are even more impressive when one learns she lost a kneecap as a teenager causing her to experience constant pain when running. She does all of this to promote veganism and to raise awareness for her sanctuary. And so, without further ado, my interview with Fiona Oaks. Thanks again for coming on the show, Fiona. Um, It's an honor to have you on, so I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Um, So I want to start this podcast at the beginning. So uh, did you grow up in the UK? Yeah, I did. I was born in uh, in a small town in um, in the Midlands uh, called Chesterfield. Yeah, so born and bred in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And was the rest of your family growing up and um, your community uh, kind of also very physically active? No, <laughs> no. I mean, I, 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 I'm a bit of a, I don't know where I came from. I know where I came from. I know where my mum and dad are. But apart from that, I'm completely different to the rest of my family and all pre-deceased generations. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing like the rest of anybody we know. Um, I, um, 
yeah, I mean, my love of sport is something I've always had. Um, you know, I, I say to people I went vegan when I was six years old and people think that I kind of come from some kind of bohemian background where, you know, we kind of travel the world exploring, you know, places. It wasn't like that at all. I come from a very, very conventional background. My father was in the mining industry and my mother was, um, she was a music teacher, but then she went to become a nurse. Um, and there wasn't even any trace of vegetarianism in my family until I came along. So um, it's kind of, uh, I am a bit of a kind of um, unique member of the Oaks clan, if you get my drift, in terms of uh, everything I do is completely opposite to what my rest, the rest of my family do. My, my sister is nothing like me, um, not even to the, to the particular love of animals. Um, it's kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> huh, that, that, that's really interesting. So mm. no, not really any other friends or peers growing up that were really as active or exercising as much as you were? No, I mean, I had a kind of, um, I had a kind of difficult background with regard to exercise, always extremely sporty at school. It's kind of difficult for me because I was born in August and I was always kind of a year behind the rest of the kids. So I was by far and away the youngest in my class. So at that time, when you're kind of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, it's a large percentage of your physical growth that you're behind the rest of your peer group. Um, so I was always up against, you know, uh, in kind of athletics, uh, you know, kids that were like ten or eleven months even older than me, which is quite a lot, you know, um, mm -hmm. at that stage of development. Um, but then I had the real problems in my teenage years uh, when I should have been doing most of my sport. That I had this um, problem with my knees um, and um, I had a lot of surgeries which took me out of all competition for a good few years um, so and, and at that point I was told that I would never walk properly again let alone run um, so um, yeah I, I wasn't you know I wasn't around any of my peer group I was taken out of school and I was literally in and out of hospital unable to walk around in fact people look at me and they think um, I'm kind of you know I've got a lot of muscle, upper body muscle. And um, they say, oh, do you work out in a gym? Do you do that? And I think, I, I don't, I don't actually do any weights or anything like that. Hmm. I think it actually comes from the amount of time I spent non-weight bearing walking around on crutches in my teenage years. I was literally on crutches most of the time between probably 13 and 14, probably 18 years old. So, um, yeah, um, it was, it, you know, it was a difficult time. It was also a time that youngsters out there won't really remember or connect to in terms of the fact there was no social media. There was mm -hmm. no way of connecting to your peer group. There was telephone in the house. Um, you know, that was all we had. So, um, yeah, um, it, 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 my love of sport is very inherent to me. Um, and the sport that I do is... Um, it's probably not the most obvious thing that you would actually look for me to be doing, having been told that I would never walk properly again, let alone be able to run. To suddenly decide to be a marathon runner and an ultra runner is kind of a bit of a, a bolt out of the blue weird decision for most people. But then again, I, I don't run for the reasons that most people run. So it's kind of right. all kind of upside down. My logic and, and what I do and the reasons behind what I do are all kind of distorted and kind of different to most people but it, it works for me so you know that's that's just 
the thing you know and if you've got you found something a model that works for you then just go with it yeah yeah absolutely so before the issue started with your knee was was running kind of your exercise of choice when, uh, growing yeah, up yeah 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 i was i was the typical sporty kid always always outside so i was running around playing i was an outdoors kid so I did athletics at school. I did everything. I did hockey. I did netball. I, 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 I had animals. I had a pony. You know, I, I just did everything outdoors. I was your typical what we call a tomboy. Um, and uh, I hated playing the piano. I mean, my mum was a piano teacher. And part of the, part of the payback was you, you, you do your piano practice and then you can get outside. And that was like the reason <laughs> that I ever le learned piano. Uh, but it wasn't a pretty thing for me to have to do. It wasn't something I'm, I'm actually naturally predisposed to doing. So, yeah, my whole life was pretty much centered around doing something outside, whether it be sport, whether it be just nature, whether it be walks, whether it be just chasing around, climbing trees. That was me up until my um, my problems started. Right. And and what what exactly was the illness that you were diagnosed with? Yeah, I mean, it was a situation whereby I kept, um, it was, it was, it was misdiagnosed many, many, many times. And it was um, like a chondromalacia patella thing where I just couldn't walk properly uh, on, hmm. on my knees with incredible pain. And then um, I kept, they kept putting my leg in plaster and then saying in six weeks it might rectify and I was just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. This was actually on both knees. And then um, in the end, they said that um, you've got a gross on the back of your right kneecap. It needs to be removed. Um, and um, they removed my kneecap, which probably wasn't the, the most severe part of it. I was actually, um, when I went to physiotherapy, I had a, misdi a misdiagnosis of, by the physiotherapist. And um, she actually thought I'd had some minor surgery. And that the best procedure would be to literally just bend my knee back on itself and put all the weight on it for some reason. And it actually ripped all the tendons and ligaments around the surgeries that I've had, burst it all open again. So oh, jeez. Yeah, it was, it was horrendous. My, I came home and um, my leg was just like twice the size. And there was a big debate, you know, in, in the hospital of, you know, my mum. It was very, very difficult, actually. It's a convoluted story. But it was, bear in mind, this is back in the 1980s when people didn't tend to question what medical professionals did. There wasn't all this uh, litigation, you know. Also, my dad, um, I said he was in the mining industry. He was actually on strike at the time. There was a lot of strikes in the UK, job losses. And um, we were reliant on my mum's salary as a student nurse. And she actually went to the physiotherapy department and said, hey, Jeeves, this is not right. What you've done to my daughter is not right. Um, but um, she was actually told to, to basically shut up, put up, and, um, or she'd lose her job. And um, we couldn't afford to, to let that happen. So we did as we were told. And um, it took me a long time to battle to actually get myself. We, I had another surgery to rectify those problems. And it, it really, really did damage, damage my confidence and, and, damage, and literally damage my, my leg. So um, at that point, um, I, was I got an infection um, and it just went as kind of a spiral of decline um, until we managed to get ourselves sorted out. Um, when I was about 18, 19 years old, we finally, 
got to a position where I could start thinking about my education again because I've missed all education at that point there was no kind of tutoring from home or anything like that I was literally just left at home to kind of um get on with these surgeries and I had to take all my, my exams with, without any help, you know, um, you know, here's the, here's the chemistry book, go and read it and try and get through your O-levels as time was. So it was a <laughs> difficult time. And um, then I, I was fortunate. Uh, it was literally at that point when I'd been to a lot of the, the um, physiotherapy and rehabilitation, deciding what I was going to do, uh, having missed the great swathe of my actual education, I um, enrolled at a college and learnt secretarial skills with a view to being a shorthand secretary. And um, yeah, so it was, it was not a time that I like to dwell on, actually, because it was thoroughly, thoroughly unpleasant, really, really difficult time. It actually seems an age ago now when I actually look at what is considered acceptable. It's not that long ago, but it's, it's, it's eons, decades, worlds apart from what, what we accept now. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it just realised how lucky you are at the moment with connectivity. I mean, for instance, when I was at home, um, and it sounds like bizarre to young people, but there were there were actually um, like three television. I think there were about three or four television channels only. No Sky, no nothing like that, and right. um, they only ran during the during the evenings and afternoons. There was nothing on television in the, in the mornings to watch. It was a pretty glum and depressing time in my life, I have to say, as a, as a young kid, having to put up with that. Uh, but you know what they say that, that what you know what if what, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, and it's probably mm -hmm. made me stronger. It's probably on reflection made me a lot more appreciative of what I've got, made me a lot more appreciative of my mobility, made me a lot more appreciative of the things that I am able to do now. So I don't tend to look on the negative side of it too much. I think, you know, there's got to be positives come from everything. And, you know, there would definitely positives come, come from that time. It gave me great strength, great, great willpower, um, and, and actually great appreciation of suffering of others, perhaps. I, I don't know, but that's the way I tend to kind of reflect on it. Right. And so was it, was it about eight years from the first operation that you had on, your, on that knee to, to the last? It was about six years, about six. five to mm -hmm. six years. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's okay. quite a long swathe of time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that's crazy. So. Yeah. Other than that, that I guess outrageous mishap um, with that one mm. physiotherapist. What did mm. what did your recovery process look like, kind of after that last operation? Yeah, I mean, it was just physiotherapy. They took the kneecap away, which makes my leg very unstable in terms of the fact that even now I'm constantly aware of the fact that I can kind of dislocate um, any any time. Um, it just hasn't having the medial stability that most people have. And actually, that's when um, I took to cycling because I thought, OK, I'm not going to be able to run. High impact does aggravate it. And also cycling is continuous motion, but it's low impact. So I thought that was the obvious thing to do. And I was actually quite fortunate that I actually went to a college um, to study um, like business studies in Oxford, um, where cycling is the big thing. So that actually propelled me forward with, with that kind of, uh, kind of physical ability. But it was just like gradual learning to bear weight again. Um, and, and even now, I, I say this quite honestly, I, I, I developed this protection of my right leg, which was so weak, and it is weak. I mean, I, I didn't realise when Keegan made the film 
running for good about mm -hmm. me, um, you actually can see that I limp when I run. And I, I didn't realize I could. I don't like feature or, or like have gait analysis or anything like that because I don't consider myself a runner. I'm just somebody applying a model to running, which is actually I want to use the running for something else. Um, so I, I don't really think too much about my running I'm like Miss Amateur uh, you know which is probably good actually in some ways because I don't fixate on it when I when I finish running I don't live eat and breathe running by any stretch of the imagination so I didn't realize that I actually run and when I started to analyze it and look at my running shoes um, I realized that yeah I do lean heavily on my left leg and I don't like to even now I think I have to kind of think uh how to walk downstairs properly one foot after the other rather than shuffle drop my you know my right leg down and then follow it through with my left leg it was all about strengthening up these poorly diminished muscles that had spent you know like best part of five years in and out of plaster casts and withering away so it was leg strengthening and i did most of that probably with my cycling um i used to cycle to work which was around about i don't know 35 miles a day and do a bit of training in the gym at lunchtime just to build strength when I when I eventually went to work in London so um yeah but there was no formal physio to it I mean it, it really was mm -hmm. a different age when I when I look back and I think I sound ridiculous saying this because for anybody who wasn't there at the time who didn't live through those times um you you really wouldn't believe it could have happened but I, I, the funny thing is, in a bizarre going off on another tangent, um, in the UK in the early 70s, we had um, a spate of murders. And this sounds completely weird thing to say at this point on a podcast about running. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we had a spate of murders in the UK. And um, I watched a television programme um, for some of the police detectives who were involved in the investigation were recalling what happened at the time and the guy actually said that um because this guy jack the ripper you know who'd been murdering these um women uh, there was only basic telephone conversations that he was having to the police and he was putting on a false accent they actually became completely convinced this guy came from northumberland and one of the police officers junior police officers said i know I, I think we're like barking up the wrong tree here and he went to his superior officer and it was just quashed at the point. And, and he said at the time, you did what your superior said. You didn't question you, your superiors. There was no avenue of questioning at that point. Um, so you basically did what you told and he backed off because there was nowhere else to take, take this idea to. It was a superior officer and if he didn't want to listen, that was it. And it was a little bit like that with the health service uh, you know, that we've got in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. There was nowhere else to go. You, you actually reached a point where you couldn't take a complaint any further. Um, and that's what, what it was for my mum. She actually tried her best. She went to the head of the physiotherapy department and she was told, no, you, you know, I'm saying that it, it stops here and it had to stop there. Um, so it was a different age. It was the age that there wasn't, it was the age without technology. Uh, you know, you couldn't Google things on the internet. You couldn't do that. Um, and I think for, it's, it's happened so quickly, the rise of the internet, that there's kind of it's only a generation apart, but the difference is so startling to the younger sector of society 
who have no recollection of it uh, as people of my generation who you know think gosh it's like having your foot in two worlds it really is a then and a now it's so remarkably different um but yeah um it is what it is um and um all you can do is try and learn and, and grow with experience and that's what i'm trying to do myself right and so when when were you able to start running again running again and and why did you start running again yeah i mean this is probably the interesting thing i mean it's a, it's a bit of a bizarre story my story you know i went bigger when i was six years old i just loved animals then i got the hiatus through my teenage years a medical problem couldn't walk couldn't run you know it couldn't go into kind of physical contact sport uh followed a conventional life went to work in london um did some cycling you know with, with relative success on a bike um but then my main passion is not running it's animals um mm -hmm. and i was doing a little bit of rescue at the time uh one of the, my my horses had an accident um we decided then to invest buy a property where we could go more into the rescue of animals so this is kind of relevant to the story of running this is what brought me to running um so we got the the sanctuary uh cow hill stables and the idea was that i would stay at home and look after the animals and martin my partner would go to work and kind of pay for it we didn't it wasn't a business it was just a place of sanctuary for the animals we'd already rescued so um forward wind a little bit and i kind of thought well i'm rescuing animals here right left and center um but i'm always addressing the symptoms i'm never getting to the cause of why they need rescuing um so i would really like to promote veganism in a positive way and this is back in the early noughties you know like 2001 you know and um i thought well what can you do uh you've got to use the mainstream media in fact i actually came to uh, america 2018 and it was in los angeles and i was having a chat well, i was doing a podcast with a guy called nimai delgado and um, he came to my room in my hotel room and he was setting up all his equipment and uh, obviously nimai's a young guy he's in the game changers you know he's a bodybuilder mm -hmm. and i said to him you know it's really hard for me to kind of convey as somebody 20 years older than you nimai what it was like at that time and i said the only thing i can say is how would you get your message across if you didn't have all this technology that you're setting up now you know you couldn't do a podcast you couldn't use social media how would you do it and he kind of looked at me and said geez i i don't know i, I see what you mean and that's where i was back in as, as, as recently as the early noughties like 2001 2002 so i wanted to get this message of positivity for veganism across because i've been vegan all my life i will say that during my time in hospital uh, my veganism was aligned to an eating disorder and my mom who was so-called allowing me to be vegan was accused of child abuse so it was hmm. kind of a radical thing to, to, to you know to be to be to be doing um so i wanted to promote it positively i mean the the imagery even to a certain extent less so today but in the past few years has been if you are vegan you can just about survive on a vegan diet but you can't thrive and you're probably going to walk around looking like you've been dug up you know rather right. than you're actually a human being so um in the uk at the time bear in mind i was i'm pretty athletic sporty that's my 
kind of predisposition in life. I'm not arty. I, my mum was, my sister were arty and they could play the piano. It was like always going to be a laborious struggle for me to do that sort of thing. Um, I knew that probably the only thing that I got in my favour um, was um, sport. And the, that the only sport at the time that was garnering any real mainstream uh, notability, especially women's sport, was marathon running for the Paula Radcliffe. And so I kind of thought to myself, okay, if I can compete in and complete, hopefully, a marathon, it's got to prove that as a vegan, you can do anything. Um, you know, it's even something as tough as running a marathon. Now, I will say that um, as, as marathon running has grown um, as a sport, you know, you've got your ultra events and you've got your kind of, you know, kind of uh, events at the North Pole and such like that. But at the time, marathon running, certainly for, for women, was a relatively new sport. I mean, bear, you know, think, I mean, Joan Benoit Samuelson won the first Olympic marathon for women, and that was 1984. And before that, it had been considered too tough an event for women to be um, competing in. Um, so it was relatively mm -hmm. new at the time. And, for, you know, for, for a, a white British woman to be doing well in it, the hashtags were already being put in place, so to speak, with the, with the media. It's a tough event. It's the, it's the most extreme event in the athletic calendar. You need tremendous endurance to be able to do this. Right. So, you know, it was, the description was there of what I, what, the message I wanted to convey. So I just kind of had to formulate a way of actually um, getting around a marathon. There weren't um, that many marathons actually at the time. There were your big events, you know, your London, but in, in, kind of now in the UK, certainly every town seems to be have a marathon or at the very least a half or a 10K. At the time, it was much more selective. There, there weren't like millions of races you could enter, and it wasn't easy to actually formulate how to run 26.2 miles at optimum pace. I mean, as I said, you couldn't Google search sub three hour training plan or coaching advice. You had to kind of either have a coach, join an athletics club or um, do it by trial and error. I kind of approach coaches. I've, I, I worked out that you probably the best way to see if you could even run at all was to enter some smaller, shorter events. Um, and then I did relatively well, you know, like 10Ks and stuff. And I looked for a coach, but nobody wanted to coach me because they said, they kind of argued that it would be detrimental to um, my performance ability to be vegan. Um, and they would be wasting their time on me because any input they gave, I would be kind of negating by this weird diet that I had. It's not weird diet at all, but I mean, obviously there weren't the products available back then. You know, it was... You couldn't go into it like a supermarket and buy a vegan. You couldn't even buy soya or anything like that. It was mm -hmm. very, very much pure plant-based. Um, so it was basically by trial and error, formulating how to get round 26.2 miles. And that's what my training is all about. It's very unique to me, the way I, the way I train and what I do. I just, it was always about... Um, pushing myself to the limits and I've got a rough idea that you needed to kind of add some speed work in there and some distance but and I realized very quickly that you weren't going to get a whole lot faster 
by just doing lots and lots of long runs. You've got to mix it up and you, it, it was going to be very, very tough. Um, but, um, and I kind of surprised myself. People ask, uh, does your leg hurt when you run? It probably doesn't hurt when, you know, after, for about 10 miles or something like that. But after, after a couple of hours, yes, I do get an awful lot of pain in my right leg purely because it's been at the same, especially in road marathons, at the same gait, at the same pace for two hours. It's taking quite a hard pummeling and it does really, really start to hurt. And it was actually um, Paula Radcliffe who actually said in, in an interview, the last thing you want to do is go to the start line of any marathon knowing that you are um, carrying an injury. And um, I've never gone to the start line of a marathon knowing that I'm not carrying an injury. I'm very, very acutely aware of this mm -hmm. right leg, which does cause me an awful lot of problems. But it was actually just as a vehicle. I wanted to promote vegan. I wanted to show the world that you could do it. What I truly believe is the um, equality of all animals, whether non-human or human. And I just wanted to show positively that if you decided that you wanted to, adopt a plant-based vegan lifestyle it can it's not going to be prohibitive in any way to sporting performance i think that controversially that's probably why i got chopped out of the game changers um because i wasn't able to sell a message of reward in terms of a before and after um you know okay um this is how I, I performed before I went vegan and after I, I felt a performance spike or after I had great mental clarity because I've never been anything but vegan. Right. <laughs> but I, I, and my, my idea was always to say, I, I don't know whether it's going to give you a performance spike. I don't know, but I know as myself, it's certainly not prohibited or inhibited my performance in any way. And I think the only before and after I can possibly give is that, um, sports psychology and um, mental health and well-being is something that is very often overlooked and my mental well-being is very important to me in that when I stand on a start line for me personally I don't want to feel that any other creature has suffered um, or sacrificed for the performance I'm, I'm about to to give or to deliver and um, that that is utmost importance to me probably more than where i am physically um so yeah that's you know that's just where i come from it's not to condemn others it's just to actually it that's what my running is about just to show positively the 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 um the benefits of, of veganism and um right it kind of grew from there i mean that's 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 all i run for really i i don't I mean when keegan came and you know like you know where are all your trophies and your medals i don't know i really don't know i get home and i uh, i just like you know that's it i've done that i i just move on what's the next thing i'm going to do and it, i've never really planned anything either you know people i've only really actually thought about why i've done things fairly recently it's just been one full-on full throttle go for it fiona and if it feels right in your gut and your heart my head does have a little bit of input along the way but i'll just go for it and, and, and grab opportunity probably because of that period of time that i kind of tend to blank out and be a bit vague about in my teenage years when i should have been doing my kind of developing and growing and interacting that i just did not have so it's probably brought a very great kind of um 
imperative to my life in terms of now I am free from incarceration, which was basically the crutches and been in the house and always waiting for ambulances. I want to make the most of every moment and be mm -hmm. able to appreciate every moment. And that's what it's all about. So I get, you know, kids writing to me, oh, how do I get an animal sanctuary? I don't know. Just grab opportunity, be creative, you know, and, and, and never live with regrets. And um, so my running is about that. I, I took to road running because I, I, I didn't really know there was any other sort of running. I just, you know, I just thought you would probably drop off the end of the earth if you tried to run past 26.2 miles. Um, and it was all about uh, tarmac and, and times. And um, for me, um, I, I do have a bizarre kind of running resume in terms of um, I'm very limited financially because we've got 600 animals to look after. So mine is probably the last mouse I, I look at feeding and people ask me, what do you eat? And it's just, well, I don't really know whatever's there. And don't you think about it? Don't you? Not really, no. I've, I've got them to think about first. And mm -hmm. um, I, um, I don't have a lot of time either. I, I, seven days a week from 3.30 in the morning, I'm pretty much up and full on with the animals. So um, it, it kind of worked out well that if I just focused on two marathons a year, there would be major marathons, big city races, and I would try and do as well as I could in them. Um, it's actually probably worked quite well for me in terms of longevity. Um, I, I, it's, it's quite a convoluted story. From a running perspective, it's kind of weird, but putting it all together, it's not. And um, in 2004, um, I got my first um, elite start in the London Marathon. And uh, a guy I was running with at the time in a running club called the Vegetarian Cycling and Athletics Club said to me, hey, Fiona, you're going to be on the start line with Paula Radcliffe. So you're going to get some publicity if you want it. Um, why don't we start now vegan runners, uh, which could be a dedicated vegan running club. The main goal of vegan runners was actually to, to get the word vegan out there in a positive forum. And the guys out there that know about running is on the elite starts, you set off like 45 minutes ahead of the main field and the men. So you've got a handful of women running through the streets of London, closed roads, captive audience. What do they see on your vest? Vegan. And putting two and two together, she must be a good runner. She must be able to be out there and, and hitting it with the Kenyans and the Ethiopians and the, and the top Europeans right. because she's actually on that start line. And I couldn't converse with people. I couldn't interact with people on a one-to-one -one basis and explain why I do what I do. But I could just put the association of positivity with the word vegan by being there mm. and um yeah so i just used to hit two two marathons a year like that um and it was kind of weird i i was i was what you know getting like Jos hermans writing to me saying you know if you come to amsterdam we'd like you on the start line we'll pay your expenses and um, a hotel so in other words if i if i just did the european races like berlin with mark mills um, I get a free entry, free travel, and I'm only away from the UK for like two days, two nights. So it's a win-win for the animals and literally for me being away from here. It's a bit surreal, though. I have to say that I am like Miss Average Runner gone mad in terms of I will be the person <laughs> that's, you know, looking at my watch thinking, oh, I've got to get training in like 15 minutes or I'm literally not going to have time to go out and do what I need to do. And I'm, 
and hunting for a pair of socks which you uh, you remember are in the washing machine and you haven't turned it on you're dragging them out thinking will these stand another session kind of thing and then putting my clothes on running up the road and, and doing what I've got to do and then coming back and listening to putting <laughs> my wellingtons on and going do, do, doing the animals but yeah uh, so yeah but I have to I mean I'm not gonna lie I mean it's like I everything about me has been selling positivity and selling not selling literally selling financially selling but putting together a positive image of what I I want and I believe um and I want to achieve and so um I, I don't fixate on myself at all I don't I don't fixate too much on what I'm doing or, but I have I'm not gonna lie I don't sell products I only ever wanted to sell the word veganism or the the ethic of veganism in that some people might find it it interesting or informative or they want it, it's something that they think that possibly could be for them also and I, yeah I, but I'm not gonna lie I have trained very very hard I, I mean when I was really seriously road running it would be a hundred miles a week it would be nine sessions wow. a week every mark would be hit I mean, and, and this was like, I, 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 I pummeled myself to the point where I would get up in the morning and I really wouldn't know what day it was other than it was 10, 800 meters in the morning and a 12 mile in, <laughs> in the evening recovery. You know, you get to, it's oh, and you are damned if you do and damned if you don't. You know that you've got to do it. You know it's going to hurt and there's, there's no excuses. But I mean, I read in magazines, you know, like, um, run your best marathon with three easy training sessions a week and never break sweat that was never going to happen for me might happen for some people but i always knew my lack of ability and my disability were good and lack of talent were going to mean that if i wanted to be where i wanted to be which was on that start line with the kenyans and the ethiopians i needed to to really turn some work and it was 10 weeks of solid training before um, a taper program of three weeks. And there was never a session or a beat mixed, missed in that. I mean, it was literally uh, Tuesday to Sunday was a hundred miles and it was three speed sessions and it was hill work and it was medium and long runs. And I will say um, I, in all that time, in the 20 years nearly that I've been training pretty hard, uh, I've never had a running injury. I've had injuries which have prohibited my running or inhibited it, but I've mm. never actually had a running incur, incurred through uh, injury incurred through running. Wow. Yeah. So, so your whole kind of reason for running was never about, uh, you know, proving to yourself or proving to others that you can run with, um, you know, this, this bad knee or, or lack of a kneecap. No. It was solely, solely around promoting this, promoting positivity yeah. around veganism and plant-based diet yeah, and, and all that. Because actually, I, I don't make excuses for myself, you know, in terms of uh, if I say, you know, oh, I came like 15th in the Berlin Marathon. I probably would have come 10th if I didn't have this bad knee. I've never, never factored that in. I am who I am. I've got what I've got. The fact that the knee causes me, obviously, it is it does inhibit me physically, but it's probably enabled me mentally because I want mm. it more. I want it more. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I, I've never, I've never allowed, I've never made excuses for myself. The one thing I will say, even today, I will come back from runs or races, and I will think, 
probably I could have done a bit better there or I could have, you know, found a little bit more there or I should have done. I've never actually been particularly proud or pleased of any run I've done. I've always thought, you know, not looked at what I had, you know, I've achieved, but what I want to achieve. And I think that that's allowed me to keep motivated because I've never, I've never run in a group. I, 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 I live very rurally. There are no other runners around me. Um, I've never had the time to get to like um, coaching sessions. Most coaching that I would need to have done is, um, is speed work. I can't run on a track. Uh, and I can't run on a track because um, I can't run bends. My knee's too bad. It won't run multiple bends. My knee will not run multiple bends. Um, so I have to do all my speed work on a treadmill. And people, I know people look down a bit on treadmill running, but that's the only place I swear I've ever got any speed from. I've had to do it on a treadmill. Um, because there's no way it just aggravates my leg too much to be running the bends of the track. Um, certain things really do cause me problems and that's one of them. Um, so yeah, um, I, I, people, what, you know, I, I, I used to put the miles together, you know, by um, three speed sessions a week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Um, and it'd be 20 by 400s, 10 by 800s, more six by one miles. There'd be recovery runs in the evening. There'd be a, a longer run midweek. There'd be a hill session on Friday and, a, and a, a proper long run on a Sunday. And that was just every week, week in, week out, always trying to up the pace a little bit on the treadmill, you know, um, and, and doing it, gathering speed and strength combined. You know, um, obviously, you're not going to run a fast marathon. You know, obviously, if you, if you can run like a... a a two minute 800 as a woman, yeah, you, you have a very good chance of running a fast marathon if you could combine that with the kind of endurance work that you've got to do. The balance is finding the medium ground between the two, being able to keep doing the speed sessions and keep able to put the endurance in as well. Um, and it's it's kind of hard motivating yourself sometimes, you know, to, to go out. The, the the only person you've got to apologize to if you don't go is yourself. But actually, I'm probably the person I would like least like to argue with because uh, failure is not an option. It's not an excuse. I never, ever okay. make excuses in terms of, ah, oh, I can't get out today because um, I will always go and I will always do what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, so mentally, I'm very strong. Physically, probably not so. Um, but where, where, I remember when I first did Marathon the Starble, somebody said to me, don't panic, Fiona, even though you have got two fractured toes and you've got to go out and do it. Um, <laughs> because it's probably, I know, about 70% mental strength and 30% physical ability. Yep. And it's the mental side that actually got me through in 2012. It was completely mental because I shouldn't, shouldn't really have gone at all. But, um, <laughs> you know, when you've been training for something for that length of time, um, it's very hard to look up at the sky and see the plane go and you wonder possibly I could have done it possibly at least if you go and you fail you know you couldn't do it or if you if you can get through it you know you could but um yeah it's 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 been a kind of quirky road I mean that's what I mean I as I say when I when I was doing the road marathons and I was getting top 20s in the world's major marathons um I, I kind of thought, you know, this is pretty good. You know, I know I'm doing re relatively well, but I'm not achieving what I want to achieve in terms of um, it keep, keeps getting skirted around a little bit, the fact that I'm vegan. And I remember uh, in the London Marathon one year, I was on the Elite Start and um, they were inviting Q&A from, um, 
you know, um, spectators and people watching watching the TV. And it was Tracy Morris um, who was actually doing a commentary. And one of my um, friends rang in and said, you know, do you think any of the ladies on this start line could be could be vegetarian or possibly even vegan? And she went, oh no, 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 that wouldn't, no, you couldn't possibly do that on a, on a, on, you know, you need meat protein, meat and dairy to win at this level. Mm-hmm. And, I, and afterwards they played it back to me and they're like, no, I'm there, you can see me. But yeah, so after a while of doing that, and it is a massively high investment, I won't say sacrifice, but it's a massive investment of time and energy to run a hundred miles quality miles a week when you've got so much else to do i mean i'm firefighting um I, i've got like 600 animals i've probably got 400 at the time to then say no i'm going to down tools now i must go and do my speed work i must do the a massive investment of mental physical strength and um even time um so that's when i decided to kind of drop down a tier and go win races win marathons you know i, I did that for a while and then somebody kind of suggested to me, look, you know, if you really want to promote veganism, why don't you try and be the first woman to do um, Marathon de Sable? You know, toughest foot race on the planet, whether it is or not, I, I don't know, it's probably not. But uh, at the time, it was certainly um, enjoying the title it had been given as the toughest foot race on the planet. Um, so that's what took me to, to running in the desert. I, did, I didn't particularly think, oh, you know, I must... I must run in the desert. I didn't really know what these races were. It was just somebody suggested it. And if you if you're running for a reason, then that's to prove um, physical strength um, as as a vegan, as a plant based athlete. Then that's got to be the race for you because you know it, it is extremely tough. Really, really doubly tough for me because I'm I'm not just plant based. I'm, I'm kind of vegan, so the ethics come into things. So when you're carting a backpack for a week across the desert. And you know that your sleeping bag weighs three times the weight of everyone else's because yours is synthetic and theirs is down filled. Um, it made oh, it like I've got this, yeah, I've got like this huge backpack. I mean, it's like bigger than me. The guy actually looked <laughs> at me and when you, when you go for the actual um, kind of weigh-ins and check-ins, he's looking at me, he's looking at the backpack and thinking, what have you got in there, woman? You know, and I, I kind of, I knew it wasn't going to be a good week at the office for me because, as I say, the week before the race, I fractured two toes at the sanctuary. A horse stood on them. And so I've now faced with going to the toughest foot race on the planet with one broken foot, so to speak. So it wasn't a great experience for me. I mean, by the long stage that year, I remember taking the gas. Well, I got tape on my foot and I looked at this just mashed up right foot that I got. And I said to one guy, what do you think that is on my little toe? It's weird, this foot. He said, I think that's the bone. You can see the bone in the little toe. It was that, oh, that bad at that point. And all I could think about was getting to the end of that race and getting the medal because, you know, I was going to be the first woman, vegan woman to do it. Um, I was getting loads of support from around the world, you know, you know, don't let the animals down. And I hadn't told many people that I'd fractured my toes. Um, so it was just my parents and my, my immediate family and doctor who knew. I just didn't want to let anybody down. So I, I got to, I, I managed to get to the end, but it, it was a tough, tough challenge. Um, yeah. With, and the pain was just like incredible. But, you know, I got there. So, you know, 
yeah. it didn't kill me. It made me actually want to go back the following year and hit the race hard mm-hmm. without any fractured toes, but that, that didn't happen. I, I did something else instead. So, but, so it's just about, you know, for me, I'll just go where I think is, um, I'll, I'll go and do what I think will benefit the animals more than necessarily what I want to do. I'm not a bucket list runner. I don't, I've got to do that and I've got to do that. And it's not, not dinner party conversation that I'm after or trophies or garments or medals, particularly that those things just don't interest me at all. Yeah. And so when, you know, when mile 20 hits and you start really feeling the pain in your knee, how are you able to keep going for, for miles and miles? Like what, what is like, do you have like a mantra that you tell yourself? Is there, um, kind of, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think it's, I think it's kind of little games that you play with your mind. And I think, I think the important thing is with marathons, um, especially road marathons, I think you've got to be a very brave person to set off at mile one at the pace that you think you can get to mile 26.2 at. And, um, it, that's something that uh, you've really got to know yourself, know your body very, very well to be able to do that and know your mind well. Um, And probably around about 18 to 20 miles when it does start to ache, you know, after two hours out there, everybody's feeling it. Um, I think you play little games with yourself. And for me, I've got running routes. I, I do certain routes. I don't people, I don't run like 12 miles in one direction and then 12 miles home. I keep, I keep relatively near to home all the time and I kind of break it down into those little loops. So I think to myself, you know, okay, we've got like six more miles, 10 more K, um, you know, that's to the church and back. You can, you know, you can run to the church and back and just imagine put your, take yourself out of this situation of Amsterdam or Berlin and put yourself on more familiar territory, which you know you can do. And I think it is just like, um, rather than telling yourself, oh my God, it's another six miles. I'm never going to be able to do that. Break it down into things that you know mentally that you're well able to do um, and try and block out the pain. But it's kind of difficult. But I think, you know, when you're in a race, other things kick in, the exhilaration, you know, the... um, Mm -hmm the reward of the finish line that you don't get in training when you get home from a training run the reward is like a cup of tea and back out to do your animal you've got the reward of actually this is everything that i've been training for for 13 weeks manifesting itself in two and a half hours two hours 45 minutes so there is that kind of added imperative you can see the the light at the end of the tunnel um, or i would say the cake at the end of the tunnel because you think ah you know after this you know, monumental effort, you've got two weeks where you don't need to think running, you can just rest, relax and, and sit back and think, you know, you've put it to bed. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's mentally, it, it, it's tough for everyone and everyone, whether it be a marathon or whatever, it goes through dark places. If you're not going through dark places in your mind, um, you're probably not running your hardest race. Um, and it's the same for everyone. I think, you know, whether you're a, a two hour what marathon runner, a four hour or a six hour or a seven hour runner, it's still tough. It's still tough. And um, it's just personally what, what gives me the ability is because I train hard and I train long distances on a Sunday. I always did a couple of over distance runs uh, every Sunday. There'd be something never less than 22, 23 miles. Mm-hmm. you've been there in training 
So you know that on a Sunday morning, this is what you do. Your body goes through this and your body starts to accept it. And I, I find that if you haven't been to those places in training, you won't be able to get yourself out of them when you're racing. And it's like saying, if you don't train hard, you won't be able to race hard because you, for me, you just wouldn't be able to find it on race day. There's going to be all sorts of added problems that you're going to get. Even the logistics of getting to the race, start, everything like that. Um, there's got to be some familiarity in what you're doing. And for me, it's just punishing yourself because um, I work very, very hard in training. So it's not a shock to my system on race day to actually um, have to work very, very hard. But there is some sort of reward for it on race day. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's like when I, when I go to the desert races, um, people ask, well, what do you take to eat? And I try to keep it as near normal as I can uh, and what I eat at home because when you actually think about it, unless you're actually used to an acclimatized running in a desert for a week uh, with a huge backpack, everything's a culture shock to your system. You know, the heat, um, the terrain, the temperatures, um, you know, the living accommodation if you like to call it that so to suddenly throw in kind of alien food as well you know these high fat meals is kind of whoa it's all coming at once you know so to speak your body's going to say no way I, I can't do all this can't handle all this um so for me i tend to take dates marzipan noodles stuff that i am kind of familiar with in day-to-day -day living because otherwise mm -hmm. it just be too much of a shock to the system it really would Right. Interesting. So when it comes to uh, when the pain sets in during training, like what do you specifically kind of, uh, I guess, tell yourself or ways in which you kind of manage to, to push through the pain that, that you're feeling during, during training and those long runs? I think it is just, and um, 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 for me, I remember why I'm doing it. I think there's got to be a reason for being out there. Every, whatever per, people's reasons is, probably all going to be different, but you've got to really want it, really want it, rather than just say, I'm willing to put up with it. You've got to want it. You've got to want to be out there hurting yourself like this. And you always have to remember why you want it so much. Now, some people's main trigger might be that they just want to win. Mine has been that to a certain extent. I wanted to be the best I could. I tend to want to be the best I can at whatever I'm doing, or else I'll drop that and go and do something where I can achieve 100%. I don't want to waste my time dibble-dabbling and 50% and doing a bit here and there. And for me, it's been always about the animals and the suffering. And I think if I can, if by doing this, I can convince one other person there is actually validity and viability in what I'm trying to promote, which is veganism, then it will always drive me on that little bit further. Um, I, mm -hmm. I want to push through the pain. I'm a great one, actually, I, I, I suppose, rather than kind of, it's gonna hurt, yeah. It's gonna hurt when you're out there. For me, it's about not minding that it hurts because the benefits of what you're doing outweigh the pain that you're causing yourself. Um, and that's what it's always been about. You know, literally, I think I'm probably creating a little bit of good by doing this. So it's worth me. It's worth keep, it, yeah. Keep at it, yeah, it's worth it. Um, mm. 
but yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own triggers. I mean, when I get out there, I, obviously I'm competitive. Um, I, I put the vegan runner vest on and I'm one of those people that, you know, I, if I'm feeling really, really down and I don't want to go training, I think, oh, I better put my vegan runner vest on because actually I feel embarrassed to let the side down. I don't want to be vegan runner collapsing at side of road. I'm kind of, you know, I want to be looking good if I'm out running, so I'll put my vegan runner vest on. And it's something that I'm proud to wear. Um, but yeah, um, for me, yeah, yeah, I, I just want to, I, I just want to do the best I can. I mean, when I started the vegan runner clubs back, club back in 2004, I was pretty much the only vegan in the village in terms of, um, I was the only one on the start line. So there would have been absolutely no point in like being buried in the middle of 50,000 runners in the Berlin marathon. The whole point was to be up. The, you know, in the elite enclosure with Haile Gabriselassie, or I'm getting collected on a bus from the elite hotel in Amsterdam, and people seeing not me, but what I was promoting as a positive thing. Um, now, vegan runners, is, I think it's probably the biggest, if not the second biggest, running club in the UK by membership. So you've got kind of the vegan runners take over events, like they'll go to park runs and 10Ks, and there'll be like loads of vegan runners there. So the, the um, the presence is in numbers as well as we've got some very, very good runners. Um, but um, at the time, 16 years ago, it was all just about uh, presenting myself and my cause, if you like, in its best possible um, forum and frame. And, and that was winning. <laughs> if you want to on the honest truth, it was right, certainly right. not obviously the, the big marathons, but, uh, my win in the big marathons was being invited to be there and being on 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 the elite start. That was the win in those races. That was never going to win, you know, the, you know, Berlin Marathon or anything like that. I'm not even a runner, you know, so uh, I've certainly got no talent. But the win was being <laughs> the invitation to be there, being associated with those people that I, you know, I do look up to. I learned a lot from Harley Gabasasi. I spent a lot of time with him and I learned a lot from him. And I think it was one of the greatest compliments I ever had paid to me. I went out on a training run with his group um, the day before Amsterdam Marathon in 2005. And he actually explained to me that he felt that we were very similar in our running. And I'm thinking, but you're way ahead of me. You're way ahead of me. I'm like eyeballs out at the back of the group going, hang on. And um, he said, no, because he transitioned up from um, 10,000 meter. He didn't need to do that. Um, he could have retired at that point. But he went to the road and he was doing the double sessions and explaining that he also had to fit it around his, his business work. Um, but he was doing it for a kind of another agenda in terms of a very great many people in Ethiopia depended on the income and through employment that his running brought to the country. And I think at one point he was employing um, directly about 10,000 people through his businesses and his hotels in, in oh, wow. Ethiopia so he was bringing a great deal of benefit to his country and his people by his running it wasn't just about him doing well personally it was about the knock-on effect and um, so yeah I mean I, obviously I, that was where the resemblance between uh, Haile Gabriel and myself ended but um, <laughs> you know um, it was a great you know a great compliment and actually as a as a, a very very amateur runner um, they're probably the big trophies that I've had from 
from my running. I'm not a professional runner. I'm not a great, you know, I don't full-time train. I don't do any of those things. I mean, I, I, I'm, I was told I would never walk properly, let alone run. So to be invited to big city marathons, to be around those runners that you really, really um, admire, um, you know, to have run with, I mean, I ran with Sammy Wanjuru and, um, you know, that was an amazing thing for me, you know, to the Kenyans, the great, the greats. Um, and to be part of that has, has been, has been probably my personal reward from running. Um, the thrill of it, just looking around and thinking, gosh, you know, by my own ability and endeavor, I've, I've managed to get here with them. It's, um, it's been, yeah, that, that's probably been the biggest, biggest reward I've had from my running. Yeah, that's... It's also that's... great. At, when, when people say to me, I mean, I want to race, I want a, a big um, inter-county marathon championship. And um, my mum was waiting for me at um, the finish line. And um, she was waiting there with one of the officials. There was a lady mayoress who was waiting to present the trophies. And um, she said to, to me, who are you waiting for? She said, oh, my daughter is running. And one of the guys said, oh, what, what, she, what, she, um, you know, what time is she looking for? And this was a really, really tough marathon course. And um, no woman, I think, had ever run under about three and a quarter hours on it. It was an absolute beast of a thing. And um, my mum couldn't very well say she's come to win. She's come to, like, break the course record she wants the 500 pound for doing it and she wants to go under three hours she couldn't really say that so she just said <laughs> my mum my mum just said well I just think she wants to get round you know <laughs> so I didn't know what to say but the lady mayoress actually she was chatting with her and she said um oh my daughter is your daughter's a vegan runner my, my daughter wants to go vegetarian and um I'm very reluctant to let her and my mum you know say you know my daughter is vegan and you know I had the same doubts and concerns but you know and um when they saw me fulfilling all, ticking all those boxes, coming to the finish line, beating all the men and whatever, um, when she presented me the prize, she said, you know, I, she said, I'm flabbergasted. I really, you know, you know, my, you know, I'm, I'm happy for my daughter. You know, if this is what you can do on a vegan diet, you know, who am I to stop my daughter being vegetarian? And that was kind of better than the prize that I'd won, just hearing that from her, because mm -hmm. knowing that I'd positively influenced someone. And it's it kind of in 2017 when I went to Marathon de Sable and, and Keegan interviewed all the guys that I was sharing the tent with. And one guy, he said, um, what, what, if you had to come back to this godforsaken race again, <laughs> what would you bring? And um, Haffa, the, the guy, just said, I'd, I'd bring Fiona because she's just shown us so much. She's helped us all. She's been such, such a great inspiration to all, all the tent and the team. Um, and she's just nothing like we kind of expected a vegan woman to be like. Well, I don't know what they expected a vegan woman to be like, but, um, you know, um, so that are kind of, you know, positive and more what I was doing my running for rather than to say, oh, you worn or you did this. I've never really, never really actually wanted to run just for running's sake. And it's always great to know that you've had a positive impact on others through your running is more what I'm about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So while you're running, how have you manipulated your body or maybe activated certain muscles in such a way that enables you to be such a great runner, do you think? Um, I, do you know, I honestly don't know. I, um, people ask me if I have an elaborate stretching regime or routine. 
I say I'm always pretty well stretched when I'm going running because I've been up at 2.30 doing all the animals. I don't, mm-hmm. uh, strength-wise, core strength, um, I've only just started, believe it's not, doing anything. And somebody actually challenged me to doing this planking. And I didn't know what it was. Um, so I started, I'll start, I'll start doing a 10 minute plank every morning and every evening because it's supposed to be good for core fitness. So I started with that and, and building up from there. But, um, mm-hmm. physically I am just quite strong from the work that I do either here at the sanctuary or as a firefighter. Um, I don't do any specific strength training and I don't do any cross training apart from the running um, and the muscle groups have just built with me um, I am a little bit embarrassingly upper body uh, muscly if you want uh, endowed <laughs> for a, um, a marathon runner and I've got I, I, I remember this when I went to um, oh, it was actually in 2005 I went to, um, to Amsterdam and I was told to go to the I got the, the email from Jos Herman who'd invited me to go you must go and you must report at the elite hotel and your, your um, race entry will be there for you. We'll have a technical meeting that night and all this kind of going on. So I, I, I was so proud of myself um, going to sign on at the hotel. And uh, I walked into where, where they were handing out the elite bags. And I think oh, my number was about number seven in the race. And I was all delighted with this. And um, the guy said to me, can I help you? And I said, oh, yes, yes, I'm here to sign on for the, for the marathon. And um, he took one look at me and said, oh, um, he said, I think you've come to the wrong place. Um, the sign on is actually at the Olympic Stadium. And I, it was obvious that he didn't think I looked like I was actually a marathon runner in the least. But he, he obviously thought I was just, you know, like an, an average runner and, um, or an elite runner, if you like. And mm-hmm. um, I kind of crumbled in embarrassment and I fished out this this uh, email from my bag and he said oh you and he kind of looked me up and down you're on the elite start and I said oh, yes I'm, you know and I could <laughs> see he was thinking you, you're a bit of the wrong shape to be running at this level there um, but um yeah so I, I I'm I pretty much carry a little bit too muscle too much muscle actually to be a really really fast runner and people when I said to people in the past oh I'm a runner they're like they're kind of looking at me what more a sprinter you know, no, no marathons. In fact, when when I go to the marathon, the because I lose so much weight in those races, I do lose a lot of muscle, and probably lose about ten kilo in the week. I always joke and say, at least when I come back, I look like a marathon runner. <laughs> like you know, cause, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, honestly, I have to be truthful. I can't lie. I don't really do anything, and I think that's probably hmm. um, my lifestyle is very physical, though. I mean, I literally. I've got 600 animals. For anybody who's kind of got an idea what it takes to care for 600 animals, it's an awful lot of physical load work every day. Couple that with the firefighting, getting ladders off pumps, and all that that entails, running out of hoses. You're making for a pretty, pretty, you know, uh, yeah, um, I don't know, muscly kind of physique if you want, um, all round, strong body is what i've got um but yeah i don't do anything specific other than run that's that's my only sport running um i don't even bother with cycling because i think now because cycling um you need to be on a bike for so much longer than you do running i mean you know to be competitive in cycling you've got 
you've got to be doing three or four hours a day. And I just wouldn't have ever have had that amount of time running the sanctuary. So running is, to me is pretty economical because you can do so much in a couple of hours a day uh, in terms of quality work. Um, you know, whether you're doing speed work and, and a recovery run in the evening, two hours and you pretty much nailed it. I don't rest in between though. I don't have any physio. I don't have anything at all um, other than quick two sessions or whatever I'm doing and then back on with my normal work. And actually what I am finding is now that it's not going to appeal to everyone the way I've achieved what I've achieved. But there are a lot of people writing to me saying, you know, geez, if you can do it, I'm a busy mom or I'm, you know, I'm a vet or something, you know, if, if you can, I never thought I'd be able to run at the next level, um, having a full-time job or having so many um, out of running commitments, but seeing the way that you've juggled it and fitted it in gives me inspiration to be able to also do it. And I think that's what I'm keen to be able to do to inspire others. And I do get a lot of people, you know, who've got injuries, a lot of people with knee injuries. It's very, very difficult to be specific because mine is a very specific thing. I never encourage people to run on an injury. If you have an injury, let it heal and then work on it. Uh, but for me, man's never going to heal. It's more of a disability that I've got. Um, so it's nice to be able to inspire others and say there is light at the end of the tunnel there is hope so just keep going because i've done it and you know after all i was told i would never be able to do this so you know just have faith have hope find ways of working around it and you too might be able to achieve this yeah yeah that's great so in the documentary uh, running for good uh, you also mentioned that you don't really care much about running i guess do you do you enjoy it at least a little bit <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah I mean I enjoy the fact that I can run I mean obviously because I, I feel I feel kind of bad when I say that because um, there are so many people out there that for whatever reason can't and I think I've become acutely aware of that certainly when my friends in Europe uh, got a friend who's been on very very severe lockdown in, in Spain um, have not been able to go out running for like six seven eight weeks I enjoy the fact that my body is able to can allow me to run but you know like when you really really know that you're so limited for time and you've got so many other things that you you've got to do and then all you've got you're standing outside in the pouring down rain you're freezing cold it's been five hours and you just know you've got to go inside and put your runners on and either get on your treadmill or go out and train it would be hard for me to say but i enjoy it um recently mm -hmm. um with um with the with the longer distance running um yeah i think there's more enjoyment in it and as a marathon runner as a road marathon runner um i actually found that one of the most difficult transitions to make between marathon training and ultra training in, and it sounds kind of flash to say it and i don't mean it to in the least realizing that when you go out for a training run it's okay to stop it's okay to be able to uh, adjust things um, because my whole uh, concept and you know kind of core uh, has been to not stop when I'm running you don't want to stop in a marathon and start thinking oh I must just like loosen up my, my trainers or anything like you want to be able to start and finish at the same pace so um, since I've been doing a bit more of the ultra stuff and the longer distance stuff yeah I probably really started to 
embrace the fact that I'm out there in the fresh air rather than just kind of complete nose to the grind, looking at your watch, working what pace you're running. You've been able mm -hmm. to chill out, get on, you know, trails. I, 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 I was a runner that went out for road marathon running. I trained on the road because that's where I would race. I never found that it would work for me to go out on a trail and kind of do the longer runs slowly. Um, I had to run hard, long runs to be able to recreate that in races. I, as I say, it might be different for other people, but um, I was supposed to be at Marathon de Sable um, in April this year, and I was really, really up for it. I was representing England in a half marathon the month before and then I was going to go and take that kind of speed with the endurance that I've got and translate it into Marathon Stable. It's hard for me in the ultra races. I'm never going to be great because I can't descend. I can climb, really, really strong climber, but descending for me with this knee is not, not good. But I wanted to do my best in that race. And I couldn't go, obviously, because of the COVID-19. So, um, I actually went out locally and ran the full 250 odd kilometers each day <laughs> wow. as, per my, as per my road book of 212. I documented it all on, on the internet. I, I filmed it all. I got up in the night, I ran the 100k stage and I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed being out. In a way, um, Marathon de Sable for me, more than a running event, it was a life enhancing experience. The ultra races, are life enhancing you put your entire possessions for that week on your back you cherish them because there is no way you can get any more so you learn to be very appreciative of things like when you come home turning the tap on and water comes out you're not looking for perrier or sparkling or fruit flavored you're just looking for that blessed thing that is h2o and you can drink it so it teaches you um it's, it's a very, very great leveler, these races. I mean, you literally, you get up, you put your pack on and you run or crawl or roll or whatever you've got to do to get from A to B each day. And then you just hit the sack, which is just a, a tent. Um, you've got no toilets, no sanitation, no nothing. And you do the same the next day and you just lay awake all night hoping that you'd be well enough to do it. Um, <laughs> but it, so you take yourself out of what your normal life is and put yourself into this surreal existence in a desert. But for me, in the UK, with the COVID-19, it was almost like doing that. I mean, it was so remarkably similar to this surreal world that we're in here now at home, in terms of um, there was nobody about. You looked right. up at the sky, there's no chemtrails. It's, it, you, that's when you're in the desert, you just look up and you think, clear blue sky no one around um you know it was at home a, a, a kind of surreal at home experience so i ran the 250k um here um as per um, you know as i say you know roughly what they sketch out you know roughly a marathon a day and one one day a double marathon and i actually really did enjoy that um enjoyed the fact that i'm able to do it and um yeah, I, I am blessed that to be able to run. But on a day-to-day -day basis, when you're training really, really hard for a marathon with no recovery time and no um, very little time in itself, you're always tired. I mean, I, I, I used to go to bed and I, I only eat one meal a day and I fall to sleep 
I'd, eat, I'd have to have my meal in bed. I was so tired when I got in and I fall to sleep with it in my mouth. Uh, and <laughs> it was, it was, it was really tough. I mean, it's been really, really tough to retrieve what I've retrieved. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say it hadn't. Um, and I, 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 I kind of probably did become kind of obsessed with, with getting the best out of myself because it's an awfully big commitment to um, set yourself a goal of running the best time. You know, you'll, in the dim and distant future, you'll target in the spring and autumn two races and by nine o'clock on that day on that morning you've got to be at your optimum um you know you've got to put the effort in in training to achieve that and um you you can't go back and catch up if you can't deliver it on the day you, you can't do anything about it so i i kind of yeah probably didn't enjoy that sort of training but i enjoy the fact that i can run and i enjoy the fact that you know if i want to go out for a three-hour run i've got the body that will just take me out i can run for three hours and i can come back and put my wellies on and go out and do the animals i, I feel very blessed to be able to do that obviously mm -hmm. and moving to that um i guess your your plant-based diet and one meal a day what would your mm. one meal a day typically like look like well, whatever's cheap, <laughs> seasonal, <laughs> and in in the house. <laughs> I mean, we are on a food donation program from the supermarket, which donate their um, on-date vegetables and stuff. And Got very it. often, yeah, I'll just eat that. And my mum will cook it up into whatever there is available. And like it'd be a, a soups or well, mm -hmm. casseroles or whatever, a lot of rice, a lot of pasta. Um, a lot of very basic um, whole grains, um, you know, lentils, chickpeas, all that sort of thing. I don't fuss about what's in the food. She cooks it, I eat it. Um, nuts are a tree, um, they're expensive. So it's, it's just very, very basic, average food. I mean, it's not, um, there's no science involved. There's not like some great calorie count or some amino acid breakdown or anything like that. <laughs> it's basically what is available what is seasonal she will we always one thing she always has worked to is a colorful platter always about 10 different colors of vegetables interesting in what a, a colorful platter that's what my even my gran she used to do that always got to be colorful um and um i take no supplements either I take nothing um i i don't buy any of the vegan products that are available uh, now that have suddenly exploded onto the market. I don't buy the processed foods because I'm always very keen to say to people, if the message is, and it, it suddenly became this way, where um, from a commercial basis, I think that um, manufacturers realized that there was an interest in plant-based living. So literally they kind of, I got the impression that if they put plant-based on it or a vegan sticker on something, it was leading people to believe that it was healthy. It's surely a lot healthier for the animals, perhaps, or some animals, because obviously a lot, there's a lot of controversy, there's a lot of palm oil and, you know, kind of habitat, natural habitats are being cut down to, you know, um, to harvest palm oil. But it's, mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of processed junk food out, so you can be a very unhealthy vegan, personally, for your own personal well-being. Right. Because now it's become saturated with junk food. Mine's very much a whole, whole food, plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of grains um there's nothing special at all in fact i kind of work, 
thought sometimes I should have some great secret or you know some sort of cookery book or something going on or you know people <laughs> expect you to have some sort of product that you buy and it's a miracle product there's none of that at all I mean I I kind of say to people I um I, I went to a half marathon last year to qualify for London on the elite start and a guy um he noticed me in the warm-up and he came over to me and said are you feeling rope? And I said, yes. So I thought I recognized you. And I'm kind of getting, oh, you know, this is kind of cool. And he said, uh, and I knew it was you when I saw you limping. So, oh, <laughs> but anyway, um, it was a really, really top professional. He actually was one of our country's best um, shorter distance runners back in the day uh, with Steve Overt, um, Steve Cram, Seb Coe. He was up there with them and he was now doing longer distance stuff and we kind of laughed at each other because he said oh i see you're you, you're similar me with your kind of um wrist attire and i've got one of these old you know timex iron man watches and he had something called a casio something really 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 old style watch in other words we didn't have a garmin didn't have a pulse monitor don't have anything like that um i just worked from what's going on in my head and it's the same with my food and uh, um when people talk to me about oh you know strava and fitbit and all that, i don't, I don't have any of that mm -hmm. and i say look you've got the most sophisticated computer known to man about your person learn to use it i.e your brain and i always think that your body will tell you what it's lacking and if you're not getting enough of something and if you do the warning signs flag up like you feel tired or you, you know listen to that and what's unique for you because obviously you can be guided by other people but other people don't walk in your shoes other people don't live your life for you so you know you could have something bleeping on your wrist and telling you not hitting your pace today but that 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 doesn't know that you've been out all night on a fire call it doesn't know that you're coming down with a cold you're just getting over one you know so learn to rather than following what others do um tread your own path in life and that's what i've done with my diet why do I only eat one meal a day? It's because it's all I could basically fit in and sit down and digest. And for me, um, I get up at half past three in the morning. That was born from my days when I was working in London. If I wanted to train on the bike, I was working in merchant banking. So once you got to work, you didn't know what time you were going to leave. I've worked in the office I worked at, at um, BZW, company called BZW. We would. I've known times when I would arrive at work at seven thirty in the morning, and I wouldn't leave the office until four p.m. the next day. And you'd work through. You'd wait for documents. You'd, it would. It was a really, really challenging work environment. Yep. Very, very long hours. And so I knew that if I wanted to train, the only time if I wasn't in work was before I got to work. And that's why it got to three thirty in the morning. I knew I could go out for like three hours on my bike and then go into work. And then whatever happened, I'd trained. Best ways round, I'd probably get to come home, I'd ride home on my bike. Worst ways round, I'd have to stay at work and, and whatever, but I knew I'd trained. And it worked for me. And once I got to work, it was full on. Um, when I came to the sanctuary, I could have trained, but at that point, it, it, I didn't need to. I, I would just had, you said one meal in the evening, it worked for me. And I've carried on. Um, when I got in the fire brigade, um, I'm an alerter. So um, at any point, you can be called to go to a fire call. I didn't want to go to a fire call and done BA and be on breathing apparatus, having had a full meal. 
So there was no point in changing because what I was doing was working for me. Um, and when I got, to, I was in the um, big race in Russia and I was there, um, we'd been invited, um, the IAAF um, press meeting, I was there and they were laying on uh, a big lunch the day before the marathon with a Kenyan and Ethiopian kind of contingency. And um, one of the Kenyan coaches said to me, oh, um, are you joining us for lunch? And I said, no, no, I, 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 don't, I don't actually eat lunch. And he looked at me and I thought he was going to go into one about, oh, you know, it's ridiculous. And he said, ah, the warrior diet. And I kind of looked at him and said, yes, that's it, the warrior diet. I'd never heard of it before. <laughs> he said, I can put in a name to it, the warrior diet. And he said, oh, a lot of Kenyans do that, just the one meal a day, because that's what they're used to. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, it can't be bad if they do it. And now, as I've become more involved with the plant-based health professionals, they're talking, they call it intermittent fasting, which is supposed to be the body's optimum way of recovering. I didn't, obviously, I'm not doing it for that. I'm just doing it because in the evening tends to be the time that I can sit down. And I like to sit down for a meal. I don't like to eat on the hoof and I don't think that's a good way to eat I think if you sit down and actually think about what you're eating and digest it properly and appreciate it that's the best way for me certainly and yeah I would agree chill time when you can sit down um and um, they call it intermittent fasting and it's ideal for the body's recovery because your body isn't your, the digestive system isn't continually burning energy to keep digesting food i don't know i'm not a, i'm not a medical practitioner i don't know i certainly can say hand on heart it has 100 percent worked and does work for me um and uh, so if it ain't broke don't fix it kind of thing it's been like 30 years i've been doing this nearly so um Mm -hmm. it's what I find gives me the most energy I never lack energy I'm like a little steam train all day just keep going keep going keep going <laughs> um if I go on a long run I, I in even in Marathon de Sable they do say you need something before each stage and I have really struggled to eat in a morning even I mean I've took flapjack bars with me that I've like spent an hour looking at you know fiddling with getting a little mouthful down I just don't tend to <laughs> need that much food i don't tend to want it i don't fixate on food I, I don't let food is a is a, a good servant and a poor master i probably my connection with food is to see it more as a fuel than something that i'm ad addicted or absolutely fixated with it's it's not everything to me in terms of i mean i've never been out for a meal I mean, in all the years we've been at the sanctuary, it's 25 years, I've never been out for a meal. I don't eat out. Um, that's kind of personal to me anyway, uh, because obviously I am vegan and I don't want to risk having anything that's not, not vegan. But more than that, I just, I don't feel the need. I, I literally am at the sanctuary busy all the time looking after the animals or doing what I've got to do or training and I haven't got a lot of money. So it's not it does not mark part of my life. I do live quite a, an unusual life, if you like, um, but it works for me. And um, so who's to say it's wrong? It's, it's got me to where I need to be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, and that's what, that's the one thing, whether you want to be an elite marathon runner or baseball player, a basketball player or netball player or whatever. Um, I think that the fitness now um, in this current crisis and health and well-being is, something that should be focused on more um for instance in the uk 
um, we're talking with the coronavirus, we're talking about, you know, uh, vaccines and uh, prop up measures, but nobody seems to be talking about prevention and preemption of another outbreak and also preparation, in, in other words, the individual putting themselves in the best place to fight and combat um, any sort of disease, um, i.e. through their immune system. Mm -hmm. And that's where we've, we have, our failings have been found in the UK when there is a, a statistic, it's quite a startling statistic to say that um, you are 37 to 40% more likely to uh, succumb to COVID if you are obese or overweight. And so I think that um, personal well-being should be focused on a little bit more now as, as kind of an imperative, rather than just saying we've got a vaccine for one thing. People's well-being, they should take more charge of their own well-being and a little bit more aware of what is in their food, where it's sourced, how it's sourced, um, you know, what it contains, and what are the impacts of that food on their future well-being, which doesn't seem to be... I don't know, the primary um, kind of message that's coming out of this. Um, so for me, yeah, um, being healthy, whether you want to be a competitive sports person or just want to, um, you, you know, just be a hobby, as a hobby, the benefits of sport and um, are, are, are very important at the moment and, and, and exhibiting those benefits in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess it's, it's almost, it's, it's astounding to me that with all the, the training that you're, you're putting in, you know, every day and, and every week and not having any supplements and just one meal a day mm -hmm. to uh, be able to, I guess, have the caloric intake to sustain you for that long just seems yeah uh, seems I mean, remarkable. I probably, I probably i'm probably have about 1600 calories a day 16 to 1800 calories a day i mean i'm not big i'm not i'm not a, i'm i suppose your body becomes used to what you give it as well mm -hmm. um i mean I, i'm not a heavy i i i suppose for instance i go out running and i for two hours for three hours i don't take fluids i don't take it i don't i don't drink either I like to put my, I'm, I'm very, I, I like to put myself in a, a situation of deprivation so that I'm very much used to extremes. I can't go and run in extreme conditions. I can't run 26.2 miles at 10 miles an hour every day, but I like mm. to kind of inadvertently put my body into the extreme position in some way and simulate it in some way that I can. So I suppose it's the same with um, if you run two sessions a day, um, you can't, it's not like running a marathon a day, but running at speed and then running at recovery and doing work in between is kind of like condensing a period of two to three hours when you are on maximum, if you like. And it's, it's all about kind of experimenting with pushing the barriers back of what your body can, can do and then learn to accept. So, for instance, if somebody was going to train wanting to run an endurance event, you wouldn't just say, right, hop off out and run 100 mile a week. You would say, build up, build up. And I suppose my life has been one long build up of challenging my body and pushing the boundaries, mm -hmm. and the folders back of what I can actually achieve. And I, I, I'm not a top level runner. I'm not a great runner. I'm not, I'm not an elite runner. But when I have spoken to elite runners, 
it's remarkable how many actually adopt the same practices. You know, um, I know that I spoke to Elliot Kipchoge a long time ago, and he was saying that he likes to train back in Kenya very basically because that's what he's used to. That's what he was brought up with. And that's what his body knows ultimately, you know, going and holding himself up in a training camp, very basic rations and training very, very, very hard. And um, I suppose that's what my my body knows it that's what triggers it that's what rather than i mean i've been to races before now half marathons indeed and there have been people lined up on the start line with what looked like grenade belts full of gels and i'm thinking do you really need all that for a half marathon you know i've never i've only ever had one gel and that was the worst mistake of my life um, I don't have all those synthetic products. I, could, I, I can't even tell you what happened, but I mean, it's not pretty. Um, I, don't, I don't use anything like that. Um, I, in, in road marathons, I have only ever taken on board plain water. I, I, cause I why, why race with something you don't train with? Um, right. So I would only ever take on water. In fact, I think it was this year's or last year's London Marathon, the female winner. They were amazed. They never saw a drink at a water station. Didn't drink, drink, didn't grab bottles, just, just carried on through the race. And that's what I've always pretty much trained. I've never carried water when I'm out. I, there are places I can get water when I'm out. I've got several of the horse yards, there's taps in graveyards, I can knock on somebody's door, but I don't carry water because I don't, <laughs> I don't train with it. And I don't raise, you know, I don't, I grab a few sips of water in a marathon. I, I'm very much focusing when I'm when I'm running a road marathon. It's just about the 165 or 160 minutes that I want to be out there. Absolute focus. I can grab water and I can drink sips, but I don't drink. You know, it's more to freshen yourself up, to give yourself a little bit of a lift, to give yourself a mental lift. I I, I train like that, so I'm well able to race like it. Um, as I say, I, I don't buy any products to enhance my running. I, I haven't got the money. I, I really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, um, it's what I've adapted to suit me. Another thing that I, I know a lot of people don't want to talk about is I've had to always make small gains because I can't make big gains because I'm not very good. You know, I'm not, I'm, I've not got a coach. I can't go away and train. But one thing that I do find, and I don't know if you can say this, by eating one meal a day, it's not just about what you take in your body, it's what you expel from your body, in, certainly in running, in marathons, and um, mm-hmm. being in charge of all aspects of your body. And um, for instance, if I take in one meal a day, I know exactly what time that meal is going to run through me and come out. And that's a big advantage in, in, in uh, sure. a marathon, because the last thing you want to do is you could be primed up for a 220 marathon, you get stomach cramps that's game over. You can't make time. You don't want to stop for a toilet break, do you? And so I've never had any of those issues when I'm running. I know that if, if all goes well, if I've got the weather conditions, if I, I know the course, um, and if I'm not ill, I know that what I've trained for, I can deliver on the day. I'm not very good at pace judgment. I know what I should be able to run because I've done it time and time and time again in training in fact i train hard i mean if i if i do a 28 mile run on a weekend you know on a sunday it'll only be a few minutes slower than pace wise than i'd probably expect to race 
on race day. I push very, very hard in training. And probably the only benefit I actually get when I'm actually racing is the taper. My legs are fresh. So that's the added lift I get when I'm racing, that my legs are fresh. So what I, can, I can actually just recreate what I've done with the training, but on fresh legs when I'm racing. And that gives me the extra 30 seconds a mile or whatever I'm going to get. But um, yeah, it's, it's a bizarre way of running that I've got. It's a bizarre way. I mean, a lot of people just joke about treadmills and say, oh, you can't possibly recreate speed on, on a treadmill. You've got to run in groups and you've got that. But I've had to do it that way. So I've had to, if I want to do it, that's the only way that's been open to me. So I've got to work with what's open um, and what is an option because, um, yeah, there's no other avenue for me to explore. That's the way I've got to do it. Right. Work with what you've got rather than what you haven't got kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And shifting gears here to the, the sanctuary, what's, what's your ultimate vision for, for the sanctuary? Well, um, the ultimate vision for everything actually has been a bit, um, I don't know, I will, I will say redirected um, in the last eight weeks. I mean, the ultimate vision for the sanctuary was actually to grow it, it was expanded. I've got um, another farm here. So it was to invite visitors to come, to interact with the animals, to kind of interact with me, to learn about what I've done, um, hopefully to encourage others to follow suit. Uh, we were going to work on the visitor potential, um, probably um, public speaking or kind of not boot camp, but kind of um, coaching others. Um, and of course, that's all been taken away for the interim period. Um, also, I was bound to do a series of races, which have now been cancelled. So it's you've got to look more to kind of the virtual and the online stuff, which is kind of strange for the short to medium term future. I would have said, you know, oh, we're going to grow and we're going to um, invest more in education. But at the minute, it's, it's a little bit just to keep going at the moment, right. which is proving quite a challenge um, because obviously as I say, I, th I think the honeymoon period of this disease is now over and the real impact is going to start hitting um, so many people losing their jobs, their livelihoods, their income. We do, it is a charity. So obviously people's first thing that has to go when, when the um, finances become um, depreciated is um, charity giving. So at the moment, it's, it's what do you do? What can you do? I mean, I've got the 600 animals. We've got the huge bills every month. The animals don't know that there's anything going on. It's my job to keep it that way. Um, so we are obviously looking for um, alternatives. And that's very much the only option open to us is, the, is online, really. Um, but we'll just have to see. I mean, nobody seems to have any definitive answers um, to, to the question of, how this is going to play out um so it's it's going to have to be going back to the old model you know be creative grab opportunities and always be ahead of the game um other than that just keeping alive and keep you know keep sustaining the animals that we have got certainly um for the short to medium term and seeing what happens globally i think is going to be how this reshapes the globe um because you know in the UK, we're certainly talking that travel is going to be very uh, limited, very inhibited. Um, obviously, we're talking about contact apps, but that could be very, very difficult if you, um, you've got plans and you've been in contact with somebody. So it's, it's kind of 
getting my head around exactly the reach of this other than on a day-to-day -day basis um so it's, it's it's going to be keeping going is is the main thing keeping alive surviving if you like um that's all i can do as with everyone else uh, my visions were in a completely different direction before this and it's kind right. of sneaked up as on the uh, you know and, and kind of now enveloped the whole world um to the point where I'm not too sure what's going to happen in the future. They're talking about vaccines. They're talking about um, treatment. But who knows? Um, at the moment, we are pretty much locked down. Um, we can't have any visitors. Um, so it's battling through each day as best we can. Mm -hmm. And what kinds of animals do you care for? Uh, at the moment, I've got 106 horses. I've got 65 cows. We've got 150 pigs. 112 sheep, um, various like chickens, geese, peacocks, swans, ducks, turkeys, dogs, cats, wild birds. Um, yeah, we've got, we've got a lot of um, lot of four-legged and feathered friends here, um, <laughs> spread over um, six sites. Um, so it, it's a lot of a lot of energy investment and time investment and financial investment um to keep keep it going we we haven't got the space that you know in a, like in america so i mean i'm in the southeast of england so land prices are a premium um it's 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 very very difficult um to manage um so yeah um we are just struggling through as best we can with our menagerie um which mm -hmm. seems to be ever growing we're constantly being asked because obviously as people are being displaced uh, through you know through um, through this disease and they're losing their jobs um animals it's knocking onto animals and a lot of people are losing their homes and um asking if we can step in and help with their their pets or their companion animals so it's a real real challenge and there is a point when you, you kind of can't you we just can't we've got to lock down and survive ourselves and hopefully ride this through but um as i say i'm i'm, I'm not really sure how we're going to do that at the moment just hope that things get better but um yeah i haven't got a crystal ball so the only thing that i can do is um on a day-to-day -day basis is as much as i can with the running um everything's been put on hold now it's kind of hard to motivate yourself to, to train for races that can be basically pulled from under you the night before um you know you you could be in the top shape you you're, you you can probably prevent yourself and as i was in march and um the night before the race it was like we got an email on the morning you know the day before saying it was going ahead and then about nine o'clock at night the night before sorry we've cancelled it um, and there's no future plans to to hold anything in the UK um, or abroad, uh, I think, at the moment. So it's, it's difficult. It's really, really difficult. I mean, even with the Olympics now, they're talking about, you know, if we don't have definitive dates, that's gonna, not going to go ahead at all in 2021. And so obviously it's starting to, I think people are starting to slowly realise this is not going to be something that's going to be over in a few weeks. Or in a few months, it's really going to spread on into the future. So it's kind of hard to prevent prevent uh, prevent definitive plans when when this is going on. Right. Yeah. For sure. 
And so I guess, do you have something that's on the calendar that you're training for? Um, like, is there like this next big adventure event for you in the future? Or are you well, more it, focused it was on? Gonna be, um, it was going to be Marathon the Starble, um, which was in April. And now it's been put back to September. Um, okay. If it can go ahead in September, which we don't know. Um, the Moroccan government were very, very quick to shut down um, the event in April. Um, I know when I was out, I know that Africa are very, very acutely aware of the potential of these um, diseases and viruses. I know in 2014, when I was in the Marathon Sable, I was having a lot of nosebleeds. I was really pushing because it was at the front of the race. And um, I started having a lot of nosebleeds and there was an outbreak. It concurred with um, an outbreak of um, Ebola in Sierra Leone. And uh, the race leader at the time, Mohammed, I was, I was out with him running and he said, you need to get that blood off your face before you go in the checkpoint because nosebleeds are a sign of Ebola. And if they see wow. it, they'll panic. You know, you need to not be, not be having so many nosebleeds. I mean, it's very difficult. You know, you put your buff around your face or whatever you got to do. I was just having nosebleeds because I got like sand and I was like 55 degree heat and carting a huge pack. And, um, but um, hopefully next year I was going to do the four deserts, uh, which is four of these ultra stage races in one year. Um, there's one in um, Namibia, um, one in the Gobi Desert, one in the Atacama Desert, one in Antarctica. Um, but we just don't know if they'll be able to go ahead. Um, it's been cancelled this year. So um, you can kind of sketch out what you'd like to do, um, but we just don't know that it's going to be possible to do them. Even domestic races are way off the calendar, even park runs, you know. So um, people are now looking virtually at running, you know, like joining together, you know, and running 10Ks on treadmills or, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, um, the feeling is that we are being slowly initiated into the thought process that this is certainly in the UK going to still be going on next year. So it's very, very hard to think, you know, about travel or about plans or, you know, what sort of training you should be doing. I mean, I'm just running a couple of hours a day uh, just to keep basic fitness, you know, um, mm -hmm. that's all you can do and see what what develops um lots of things i'd like to do but whether they're going to it's going to be viable and feasible to do them i don't know um but you know i don't run professionally i don't don't run for a living um so you know we shall have to see i'm i you know i was putting myself in the um position of you know you know some of the olympic athletes you know that uh, you do hear um, stories that you know i mean um People are primed, they've geared themselves towards this year. Um, it's, you know, it, it's probably going to be some people's last season. Um, and they're not going to make their ultimate goal. Um, we, we, you know, we've got a sprinter, you know. Um, I think Shayan Fraser-Price was going to make this her last season and hopefully go out with an um, Olympic double. Um, now she's got to wait another year. We've got Dina Asher-Smith, who was coming into her absolute prime. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's the, the impact in all sports, I'd say. I mean, I just know about athletics. It's quite monumental. Um, so my main imperative has got to be keeping the sanctuary going. You know, that's for the animals' sake. It's not just about me. It's about them. And, 
it's very, very difficult because, you know, the input here is we need about 20 to 25,000 pounds a month to, to survive. And we have to generate that income by our own salaries, um, by fundraising. And funds per se are very difficult to raise. And I don't see it becoming any easier over the next few months. So um, it's, there's a lot of imponderables out there. You know, it's, it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and bringing this back to the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, uh, mm-hmm. what's been your driving force throughout your life? I can, I can, I think I can guess what it is, but what do you, what's your driving force? Um, the, I suppose the liberation of justice for animals and mm-hmm. justice for animals. It's about animal caring about animals. Um, and it's just something that's in me and I don't condemn people that it's, it's not particular to them. But, you know, from, from before I can almost remember, this has been almost what I was put on this earth to do. And um, as I say, six-year-old deciding to go vegan, I didn't tell my mom I want to be vegan at six years old. I didn't know what the word vegan meant. I just knew the principle behind it. I didn't want to harm animals. Um, and that's been something that's grown with me and um, has manifested in the sanctuary, in the rescue of 600 animals in going out to break world records, in going to the North Pole, going to Antarctica, I'd go wherever and do whatever I've got to do with that end goal in mind, the animals and the suffering. Um, I, I can't bear the thought of suffering, whether it be human, animal or non-human animal. Um, you know, the, and I think that's when I was saying about the Marathon de Salvador and races such as that, a week with nothing, you know, I've seen grown men crying, I've seen, you know, trading toilet paper for paracetamol, you know, it's about bringing mm-hmm. it back to basics, and basically we all, whether we're non-human or human animals, we need the same things, water, food, shelter, no pain, no fear, and freedom, and um, I think even now with this lockdown, in a in a very, very kind of um, inadvertent way, people are beginning to be aware of the importance of liberty, you know, the ability to go somewhere at will, not having to be dictated to or to, to stay in, incarcerated inside. And um, I've always been very, very acutely aware of the, the suffering, suffering of animals and what we do to these animals on, on a daily basis, their fear and their pain. And to end that, to, to, to be part in some way, to play some part on this planet of making hopefully when I die, whenever that might be, it might be today for all I know, uh, having left a slightly better place on this world than what I actually came into. I don't know whether that's feasible, but that's what's always been what's driven me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautifully put. Uh, and then to end here, what's, what's one piece of advice that you would like to leave the people listening who even are thinking of maybe completing their first 5k, 10k marathon or whatever, whatever distance race they're thinking about doing, but um, you know, aren't sure if they have it in them to, to do it. Self-belief, self-belief, and understand that it's all relative. Everything's relative. Your challenges and goals are relative to you. So if you're looking at the next person thinking, I can never be as good as that person because they're faster than me or they can run further than me. Don't look at it like that. Look at what you can do. Don't look at what you can't do, you know, and be grateful of it. And um, yeah, see the beauty in, in, in the person you are and, and what you can achieve. Um, and don't beat yourself up over times and you know statistics. Just be blessed that you're out there doing it 
and you know you know set the bar as high as you want it to be and and you know if you believe self-belief and determination you'll get there yeah yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more uh well this has been great uh fiona thanks again for coming on the show it was it was an honor to have you on you're welcome. Um, yeah you're very welcome where can people go if they want to follow what you're up to um and also maybe and also to support the the sanctuary the usual portals, you know, Instagram, Fiona Oaks, so Instagram Tahoe Stables, or uh, Facebook, social media, um, Fiona Oaks on there, or um.com. You can find everything that we're doing on a daily basis, both with the sanctuary and with my running. Um, or just, you know, connect, mail me. And uh, anybody wants any advice, or got any ideas, or got any questions, anything they want to know, Still, mate, email me. I mean, whatever portal you use, it's all just me sitting at a computer answering it. So I've got like a team of 20 people here doing all the social media stuff. We do it all ourselves. So I'll see whatever comes in and mm-hmm. always happy to help. I think that's probably my biggest mantra. Always happy to help because actually the greatest thing for me is not achieving so much myself. It's the helping in some small part others to achieve their goals. Mm-hmm. Um and that's very, very important to me. I'll just say quickly, when I was in Marathon de Sable in 2014, I was riding really, really high in the rankings, right out front. And one of my teammates had leukemia, a guy called Mike Julia, and um, he was really struggling. I mean, it was taking me about four hours each stage and taking him about, like, cut off 11, 12 hours. And he came back to camp on the night, the second, after the second stage, he was absolutely in tears and he said, I can't go on. I cannot do this anymore. And even if I can get through tomorrow, which was another, you know, 30 odd case day, I've got the double, you know, the long stage and I'm never going to do that the day after. And I kind of stepped in. I could see what it meant, not only to Mike, but to the people who were following him. He got leukemia. He was trying to prove to people that an illness does not need to define you. It does need, not need to set the parameters and limits of what mm. you can achieve. Um, so I said to him, look, if you want to do the long stage and you get through tomorrow, if no one else will mentor you around it, and he was on chemotherapy, so it wasn't easy, I will, I will, I will stay with you. I will mentor you around that, that, the long stage. It was like 90K or whatever. And he said, but you can't. You're right out the front. And actually, for me, the, the running has always been, it's been compassion over competition, whether it's compassion for another competitor or compassion for the animals that drives me out there it's always been more important than the actual competition that I'm in um I've never wanted to lose myself in the greed and the need you know what I mean it's always been about others and yeah I did I stayed with him and um I got him around that that long stage and it was brutal absolutely brutal and it was very very difficult to watch him suffering so much but he wanted it so badly and I knew where he was coming from and um I mean I went on the next day and won the marathon stage but um he it got him to where he needed to be. And mm. that's probably one of my, my best achievements um, with, with the running. And it's always something that I always kind of keep my feet on the ground with and remember. It's all, all about others, um, other competitors, and being blessed to be able to be out there and able to help others is, is a far greater reward than a trophy. Well, it always has been for me. Yeah, that's great. I love that compassion over competition. That's great. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Awesome. Uh, and 
you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com, and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Thanks, everyone who's listening, and see you next time.